As the children walk out, I'll invite you to join me in John chapter 5. We'll be looking to verses 30 through 47. John 5 verse 30 serves as a bit of a a bridge, passage from, from where we've been to where we're going today in, um, in the text, and so I put it before you now. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's a bit of a bookend as Jesus is connecting to what he has already said in verse 19 of, of John 5, uh, where he says, I do nothing on my own. Without minimizing his authority, he is emphasizing his union with the Father. And so, in doing so, not only does he close out, include a train of thought, he he sets a tone for where he goes today. Where he will point to the witnesses that will testify to his deity, he does so with a tone of deep humility. So let us, with humility, ask the Lord's blessing as we approach his word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this text, I pray that you would speak and that we would hear. Not only that we would hear, that we would listen to this testimony of truth. By this truth, we would be blessed and transformed more and more into the image of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, 
how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. This text, really in all of Scripture, it, it, it begs a question of us about our primary orientation. Is your primary orientation towards self? Or is it towards Jesus? And what does that orientation say about your view of authority? Religious leaders had a particular view of authority, and it led them to, to use religion to reinforce self. How about us? We're using religion or other devices of our own choosing to reinforce self. Jesus has been talking about authority. He's been talking about authority for the past few weeks and where we have been in, in John chapter 5. And as he has talked about authority, he has spoken of, of judgment. He has spoken of him being the judge. And here he puts forward witnesses. When you hear judgment and judge and, and witnesses, it, it, it conjures up a certain imagery. The imagery of a, of a courtroom setting question before us in, in that courtroom is, is who is really on trial? You and I, whether we say it or not, and very rarely do we use these words, but we, we're tempted to put Jesus on trial, to think that these witnesses are there to either prove or disprove the case against Jesus. And closely related to whether or not we view Jesus as the one on trial here is, is the temptation to put truth itself on trial. Now, all this talk of trial and who's on trial, where are we sitting? Where are we sitting in this not-so-imaginary courtroom? Well, if we view this trial as a trial by jury... We're putting ourselves, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're putting ourselves in the jury box. And if we say instead that this is a trial by judge, we put ourselves directly behind the bench. Because there, we proclaim ourselves the authority, the decider. And there, we judge the credibility of the witnesses. We weigh the case for and against. And then we make the final, unappealable decision of right and wrong. We don't have to answer it. That's just our orientation. An orientation towards self that is so deeply ingrained that we don't even consciously think about it. So from the outset... I want to put before you a biblical presupposition that will radically reorient our position in the courtroom of our mind. And that is this. Truth is non-negotiable. Truth is simply truth. And it is the height of arrogance for us to think that we could sit in the judgment seat over it. Now, what I hope to show you through this text is that very strong declaration is actually a good and gracious thing. 
with the witnesses that Jesus gives us here, they're not put before us to prove truth. They're here to testify to it. And in testifying to truth, they are presented in order to render us either in right or wrong relationship to truth, regardless of how hard we try and use the witnesses in other ways. Let me repeat that. The witnesses that Jesus gives us here, they are not here to prove truth. They're here to testify to it. And in testifying to truth, they render us, you and I, in right or wrong relationship to that truth that they testify. So, in the courtroom that Jesus has presented here in John 5, you and I were not the jury. <laughs> we're not the judge. We're actually the defendants. And so now, having settled out the, the places in the courtroom, Jesus is ready to call the first witness, John the Baptist. <laughs> now, as he introduces John the Baptist, I want to acknowledge that, that this discussion of truth, what I've just described to you, then makes verse 31 a bit confusing, where he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying that his testimony is false. You might read uh, a translation that says, my testimony is not deemed true. In other words, his testimony by itself, according to the law of God, the law of Moses that we see very clearly in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, that testimony by itself is not sufficient. The law of God understands in caring for the defendants that more than one witness is required. Think about it this way. If you had to sign a legal document at any time of late or any time, oftentimes when you sign that legal document, there's a place for your signature and then there's a place for a witness. Now, you don't sign your signature and then sign the witness. The witness signature is there to testify that your signature is you. It's a backup. Jesus is saying, I don't witness to my own testimony. The Father has provided the witness. The Father has provided the second. Actually, in this text, the Father provides the second and the third and the fourth. It's the Father providing this. We, we see that in verse 32. Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. I believe that verse 32 is pointing to the testimony of the Father. And then in verse 33, the witnesses that the Father sends. The first being John the Baptist. Now, you've heard about John the Baptist already in this gospel account. We've seen him multiple times. We were introduced to him in John chapter 1. He was the messenger. He was the preacher. And the people in Jerusalem, even the religious leaders, heard his preaching, and they flocked outside of Jerusalem to hear his message. And the religious leaders sent uh, emissaries to say, Who are you? What is your identity? We heard that identity in John 1.23 as, 
The Baptist would cite scripture saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist answered his identity in terms of his prophetic purpose. And his prophetic purpose was to point to Jesus. The religious leaders heard him, but they didn't listen. That's the first witness. But he wasn't the last. In verse 36, Jesus speaks of a greater witness. The witness of the works. I'll, I'll remind you, this, this dialogue that is happening here, it's actually more of a monologue right now, but between Jesus and the religious leaders, it started back at the beginning of John chapter 5 when, when Jesus healed the man by the pool. And he did so, if you recall, on a Sabbath, which opened up a whole nother can of worms with the religious leaders who were upset with him that he would do such a thing on the Sabbath. So it began this, this conversation, this, this teaching, this interaction, this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that continues at this point. It was in John's gospel account, the third sign that he presents. And we've talked about this as our time in, uh, in, in this gospel has, has moved forward, that John is very intentionally presenting to us a series of signs, of miracles, and he does so for a purpose, a purpose that he actually gives us at the end of the gospel account in, in John 20, verses 30 and 31. He tells us there that he offers these signs that you may believe Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, you may have life in his name. I've hinted at this already. I want to put it back before you. There's a, there's a not-so-subtle nuance going on here with John in the, in the entirety of this gospel account and, partic- and, in, this, uh, and in this work itself. That it is not offered to prove Jesus' identity, but it's given to proclaim it. Not to prove, but to proclaim, because Jesus doesn't have to prove truth. When we think of proof and demanding proof, what, what are we doing? We're, we're making ourselves the arbiter of truth. We're, we're placing ourselves in authority over the evidence, so that we can weigh it. Jesus is saying, no. No, you're not going to weigh out this truth. It is true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is true, and it's true whether you believe it or not. Jesus, the eternal word, became flesh. Jesus became incarnate, whether you believe it or not. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, whether you believe it or not. Jesus died a death on the cross in your place, whether you believe it or not. He was buried, whether you believe it or not, and he rose again, whether you believe it or not. Now, I say that not because I'm trying to make Jesus out to be indifferent, but because it's true. 
And the sooner we realize that the gospel is true, whether we believe it or not, the sooner we will realize that we have less power than we think we do. That's a good thing. It's a good thing because it can be exhausting being the judge of truth. It can be exhausting placing ourselves above Jesus to determine whether or not he lived, whether or not his word is true, whether or not he is the savior of sinners. It is exhausting and Jesus says, rest. Because this truth is for you. There's also implications of this reality in terms of evangelism When we speak to other people about Jesus, whether we acknowledge it or not, what are we often doing? We present the case for Christ, and then we say, believe me. Because we build an identity over whether or not someone believes what I have to say to them. It makes me needy of your response, and it tempts me to adjust the message to fit your ears. just my purpose to gather followers to me and if you're here this morning and if you're wrestling with these truths about Christ if you're wrestling with the gospel of Jesus Christ I I, want to take just a second and just apologize for the way that message has so often been proclaimed by needy people to get you to believe us and And in that apology, I want to reassure you that it is a good and gracious thing that the gospel is true. Whether you believe it or not. The witnesses that Jesus presents in this text, they're not here trying to convince us. They're here proclaiming. They're pointing to truth incarnate John the Baptist has done this the witness of the works has done it but Jesus knows his audience and so he saves his most powerful and possibly most pointed witness for last it's the witness of the word verse 37 Jesus speaks the witness of the father and he says you you haven't seen him you haven't seen his his form you haven't heard him but you do have his word and his word bears witness it's jesus now this is a particularly pointed witness for jesus to put forward first of all because as he does so he speaks of god as father and the religious leaders they weren't ready to receive that 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 irked them. It, it, it brought about their anger as Jesus talked about his intimacy with God in terms of father and son. But it is also particularly pointed because Jesus is taking them, the religious leaders, to Moses. And that was their domain, or at least they thought. The problem was... They had been reading Moses. They had been reading the Old Testament. And when I say Moses, I'm speaking of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, whom Moses authored. Jesus attributed him as the author, and he points the religious leaders 
back to Moses and he says, you have been reading him and you have been reading him wrongly because he wrote about me. When Jesus says that Moses wrote about him, he's speaking specifically and generally. Likely, specifically, he's referring to Deuteronomy 18.18, where Moses says that the Lord will raise up another prophet like me. It's a verse that that was considered by them and, and scholars today as a messianic prophecy, specifically pointing to Jesus Christ as the prophet to come. But more broadly, all of the law of Moses pointed to Jesus as he begins in the beginning prophesying of a redeemer who would come, who would crush the head of the serpent. But Jesus is adding in Luke 24 that it is not only all of the law of Moses, but it is all of the Psalms and all of the prophets that point to him. Jesus is declaring himself before the teachers of the law, before the teachers of the Old Testament, that he himself is the message of the Old Testament. Word of God testifies to the truth of Jesus. That's what he's putting before us in this text. Okay, now what do we do with that? So what? For them and for us. Well, Jesus is telling us that the witnesses are provided in order to proclaim his true identity. But let's remember where we are seated in this courtroom. Jesus isn't on trial. Jesus is the judge. We are the defendants. The witnesses speaking of the judge and speaking against us. And Jesus is convicting them and us about our relationship to this truth. And as he does so, giving us these witnesses, he is accusing us, he's convicting us, rather, of witness tampering. You know what witness tampering is. Witness tampering is, is offering a bribe or a, or a threat to a witness in order to try and manipulate that witness's testimony, to sway it in some shape, form, or fashion in order to serve our own needs. If we can tamper with a witness, we can can play with their testimony. Get them to do what we want them to do. How did the religious leaders, and how do we, tamper with these witnesses? Well, Jesus tells us. With John the Baptist, he says that you were willing to rejoice in his light for a while. There had been a prophetic silence for hundreds of years. And now the people rejoiced that there was a prophet proclaiming the coming Messiah. And they flocked to hear him. And he was a powerful speaker. They enjoyed listening to this preacher. And the word even tells us that King Herod, the one who would put John to death, that King Herod even liked to hear from him. They heard. They didn't listen to the heart of his message. How about us? How do we tamper with the prophetic witness? Well, we're tempted to to gather around us preachers to tickle our ears, 
to tell us what we want to hear, not to challenge too much, to, to maybe entertain us with, with the stories, to give us what we want. We tamper with the witness. What about the works? Throughout the gospel account, the religious leaders, they kept demanding signs. They did so because they were putting themselves in authority over Jesus, demanding from him, but also because they wanted a show. They wanted to see the tricks. They wanted to see the lame get up and walk. And then in John 6, the next chapter, we'll see Jesus feed the 5,000. And what did they do? They come back for more, not because they saw in the sign the Messiah, but because they wanted lunch. They wanted the work in order to eat their fill. How do we do this? Well, we build a version of a deity who is there to serve our needs. We build God in our image and we ask and demand for him to give us what we want. I ask you a question. As you consider your prayer life, how much of your prayer life is considered reflecting on the glory of God and how much of it is simply asking him to give you your desires? Now, don't get me wrong. God tells us in his word to bring our needs before him. But is that all we're doing? is we communicate with our great God. We tamper with the witness of the works when we demand them to satisfy our own appetites. As we approach the testimony of the word, we find what I believe highlights the real issue. Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. And he says, you, you searched the word. Because you thought that in the word you would find life. Now, he explains more fully what he's talking about a little bit later in verse 44 when he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He's telling them that you use the word of God to seek the glory of man, to make yourself feel good about how bright a teacher you are, or to use the word to reinforce a religious system so that you can establish self, measure self, justify self. Religious leaders were good at that, at developing this type of religious system, but the problem was that in their religious system there was no place left for the living God. When Jesus talks of this glory, he highlights the real issue. They sought the glory that comes from man. They, they approached the word with an inward focus. And we so often approach the word and life with an inward focus. Many of us wouldn't call it religion. Yet we have a self-focused search for pleasure. Even a self-focused definition of morality. I refer to no one in particular when I offer this, but think about road rage. <laughs> Why do we get so upset? Because we've defined morality in terms of whether or not someone drives the same way I do. We're creative, right? 
We're creative in the way we seek to justify self. But whatever version of self-justification we choose, it's still a version of self-seeking for glory or just self. But here's the other thing. We, We tend to associate these religious systems, whatever flavor they take, with the achievers. The religious leaders that Jesus spoke with, they were the ones who were good at their religion. And we tend to think that they're the only ones who are self-focused, but it's not. It's also those who would see in these religious systems they're not qualifying by whatever measure they've established and using that disqualification as a reason to run away. Do you hear? Some are winning. Some are losing. But all of us are comparing. And none of this comparing with a focus on self is the gospel. So having heard the witnesses that proclaim truth, Jesus commands us to seek the glory that comes from God. But what is this glory that comes from God? It's Jesus. Jesus is the glory that comes from God. Jesus is glory incarnate. And Jesus says, come to me and have life. This life that Jesus calls us to and this glory that he commands us to seek is the opposite of a life built around self because it is ultimately a life of union with Christ, a life of intimacy with Jesus. What is intimacy? The world would tell you that intimacy is self-pleasure. Intimacy has nothing to do with self. Intimacy is union. And true intimacy requires a total focus on another. Intimacy requires giving ourselves wholly over to knowing another. Sadly, many of us are incapable of love whether it is love horizontally or love with God, because we're too focused on self to truly know another. But Jesus is telling us throughout the gospel and in this passage that life is found in letting go of self, in embracing truth and seeking the glory that is Jesus and intimate relationship with him. The religious leaders, they, they searched the scripture to find life and they missed it. We search the world to find life and we miss it because we tamper with the witnesses and we define truth on our own terms. And in doing so, ironically, we testify to our own guilt. But this is the gospel. And this courtroom scene there is a radical reversal of roles Jesus he is the judge but in this courtroom Jesus the judge he he comes away from the bench and he steps down and he takes the place of the defendant listen this courtroom our guilt it was never in doubt the case was closed. And so Jesus reversed the roles. The judge took the judgment on himself. 
taking our place in death. And it is all by grace. This truth of all that this judge has done, it is not a truth meant for us to approve of. It is a truth meant to be received through faith alone. Friends, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the call to experience life in Him. A call that we experience possibly most clearly here at this table. Because at this table, the judge who took on judgment, he is the sacrificial lamb who becomes the host for sinners who are saved by grace. And to us, he invites us, come and be fed. It was words in Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Friends, if you've come to the point of letting go of self, self-authority, self-justification, if you've come to embrace your need of a Savior, you come and feast on Him. If you are still holding out for some measure of self-justification, if you are still defining your religion in terms of establishing self, then, then I ask you to refrain from coming because this is the place for needy sinners who have found a gracious Savior. But if in all this discussion today of, of truth and witnesses that testify to truth, Perhaps you have heard that witness with clarity for the first time and listened. I want to take hold of this Savior by faith. I invite you to come. Michael will be at the back, and he is there to pray with you a prayer of faith and repentance. Now let us ask the Lord's blessing as we prepare to come to his table. Father, we praise you for this word. We praise you that Jesus Christ is true. And we pray that as we come, that we would receive. Receive a meal that, that both reminds us and of intimacy with him and celebrates that intimacy. Father, feed us with Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.